The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Uh, thanks for this day, for what it's about, for what we get to do, for who you are. You have done marvelous things. We help us to celebrate them, to remember them, to think about them, to celebrate them. And will you bring us into, as we celebrate this morning, what I pray that this would be, would be a step, a movement for all of us, that we each would come into a, a new and fresh experience of life. Depending on where we are at the moment, that'll look different for each of us, but that's what I ask you for, that you would bring us each, each one, into a new and fresh experience of life. You would make us aware of you, of your love for us, of your care for us, and draw us on into life lived with you and for you. So make this passage clear this morning. Give, give clarity to my speaking and our listening, and honor yourself here in our midst. And bring us to life. That's my request. Thank you, Lord, for being God to us. Honor your name and build your church, I pray. Thank you. Amen. Today, as we celebrate Easter Sunday, we, we sing about and we rejoice in a set of surprising historical facts that speak to us an amazing message. Jesus has risen from the dead, which was a total surprise. He said he would, but nobody believed him, of course. He said he would, nobody believed him. And when they saw him arrested and saw the crowd that had, as we saw last week, been increasingly celebrating him and enthusiastic about him, totally turned in the course of five days and condemned him, along with the court, and they saw him crucified on that fateful Friday. All of his followers were certain that their hopes were dead, just as dead as Jesus was. Some of them have taken him off the cross with their own hands, wrapped him up, put him in a tomb, put the rock in front of it. He's dead, and so is our hope. But, of course, as we know, the grave could not hold him, and on Sunday he was raised again bodily alive which was shocking and surprising and impossible to believe. You may recall, as we studied the book of Luke recently, that time and again, Jesus had to appear, physically and bodily appear, to different groups of people. They wouldn't believe each other's word on this. They had to see it themselves. And again and again, he appeared and showed himself, showed his body, let them touch the scars where the nails had been, showed, let them watch him eat, hung out with them for days on end. He had to show them, to prove to them he actually was alive, and it came to be that 500 eyewitnesses were willing to testify to the fact he was alive after being fully dead. Alive, never to be dead again. This is an amazing, shocking, remarkable fact of history. But actually, that's not really what we celebrate this morning. We celebrate what that means. We celebrate the message that's behind these events, what they speak to us. That's what we celebrate and rejoice in, the message that is about our deepest of all human needs and about the God who acted to meet that need. We, we live longing for life. We live chasing it everywhere. Not just, not just existence. We live longing for a life that is, that is characterized by, by wholeness, by, by fullness, by love, especially by love. We could probably wrap up everything that we're looking for under the word love. We long for, we look for a life of love. And the message in this Easter event is about how God has acted to deliver us to life in love. So we're going to consider that this morning through a very familiar passage. Not one that is in the context of Easter itself, but, but one that speaks to this message. Very familiar passage in John chapter 3. Anybody knows anything about the Bible at all, it's John 
probably. And we're going to look at that this morning and, and the surrounding context. This passage in, in the, the book of John, chapter 3, comes immediately after Jesus had a conversation with a Jewish religious leader named Nicodemus. He'd been discussing with Nicodemus this, this idea of life, particularly the need to be born again to life. And though Nicodemus was a religious leader, he did not understand what Jesus meant. Jesus is talking about the need for people who are alive to find life, to be born again to new life. Of course, Jesus is not talking about physical life. He means a spiritual life, a, a life that is, as our passage will say this morning, eternal life, life that, that begins now but stretches on into eternity, that is, that is an existence that is not just existing, but is an existence particularly whole, at peace, in love with God and his people. Life. Nicodemus didn't follow what he was saying. Jesus tried to explain it. And then after that conversation, we get our passage that we're going to look at this morning, which is a bit of a, a summary, a, a restatement in some different terms about what Jesus was trying to communicate there. Stated in different words, of course, but it flows right out of that conversation. Life, birth, the need to find life even though we're, even though we're alive. So that's what we're going to be looking at. I'm going to make two observations from this passage after I read it. And I th we take those two observations together. I think they will express for us the message of Easter. Let me put it like this. New life comes when we, by faith, embrace God's love in Christ. New life comes when we, by faith, embrace God's love in Christ. So that's where we're going this morning. Let me read John chapter 3. I'm going to begin in verse 14 and read through 21. John 3, 14. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light, because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed but whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his deeds have been carried out in God. John chapter 3. So I'm going to make two observations here. The first one is about God and what God has done. Here it is. God loves the world by sending Christ. God loves the world by sending Christ. Verse 16, for God so loved the world. Very familiar statement, obviously, right? But ironically, it's so familiar that I bet it's been a long time since anybody's actually thought about that verse. We, we rarely think about what John 3.16 says. So let's, let's slow down and let's look at it. It says that he loved the world. And in the book of John, when John uses that word world, it's not just another way of saying the planet or earth or creation. It, it is all of the created order, especially humanity, especially humankind, all the created order, especially humankind, and this is a very important point, in its negative moral state. So it's not neutral. It has a negative moral component. The world is the created order that has fallen in sin and in rebellion against God. So as John uses that word here, obviously then it, it's, it's a bad word. Entirely bad. 
shows up all throughout John's gospel. We, were to, we could look everywhere and find it frequently. It's always negative, and it's used in this context of, you can hear it, Jesus, though Jesus has a body, and Jesus is physically dwelling on planet Earth, he's not a part of the world. He's like a rock placed into the ocean, in the world, but not of it. The rock's not the ocean, it's just in the ocean. Jesus is not of the world. And then when Jesus, we would see elsewhere in John, when Jesus actually saves a person and gives them this new life that we're going to be talking about, he gives this life and brings them out of the world, though obviously we're still physically in a body, physically dwelling on planet Earth, no longer of the world and not supposed to go back and mix with it. Though obviously we're here. So there's a distinction here. The, the world and Jesus, the world and, and God's saved people, the world is always negative. It's a bad thing. That's what it is. And this verse says God loves it. So we've got to be clear. The world is humanity, all the creation, especially people, fallen and in rebellion, and God loves it. Which says something amazing about God. This is a great and generous lover. That he would love even the world. Now, the Bible is very clear. We could also look across all the Bible, and we would find that God, in fact, does have a particular bent. He's got a bias, like, like any parent does towards your own kids. God has a bias towards his own people, and he loves his own people. If you think of the book of Ephesians, where it says that God's love is wide and long and high and deep, that's directed towards his own people that he has already saved out of the world. He does have a bias. He does love his own particularly and uniquely, but that's not what this passage is about. That's something else. This passage is about how God loves the world, and it's a surprising affirmation. He loves it differently so, but truly so, and he loves it greatly. God so loves the world. Taken as a whole, the language in that verse is trying to emphasize intensity of love. He so greatly loves the world. So it's trying to come across to us. He, he so greatly loves the world. He sees the world. God, above the world, sees the, the world. He looks at all of, it, all of its cultures and all of its history and its ways and its patterns and its systems and its peoples. And he aches at the rebellion. Now, is, is God angered at rebellion? Yes. Th that too. No, no ruler is peachy keen about rebellion. God, God is indeed angered about rebellion, but he aches at rebellion also. Because he sees all of the world and all that it is and sees how unjust and how unrighteous it is, and he sorrows at the world's resultant Confusion and struggling and hurting and pain. He alone, as the creator, he alone best knows what the creation was like back in Eden before sin entered into the garden and entered into the hearts of people. And he alone knows what perfect fellowship was like and was meant to be like between people, between people themselves, between people and the creation, between people and the God who made them and made them for relationship with himself. Men and women and boys and girls made in his image, made to commune with him, made to enjoy all of his beauty and all of his goodness and all of his love and all of his, his gracious gifts and to then reflect them out into creation and to live in a perfect place. He knows what that was like. He knows each person in the world by name and sees how it all has gone wrong. And he aches at that. He sees all the inner tracings of each person's heart. He sees everyone's longings and everyone's loss and everyone's confusion and everyone's personal, personal bents. And yes, there's disobedience involved in that, but there's also sorrow and lostness and confusion. And God sees that. And if you sit here this morning 
and you're not yet a Christian, I hope you realize this, that you are face to face with a God who knows and understands you better than you know yourself. And who imagined more for this place and more for you than you ever have. And who loves you, loves you more and better than you love yourself. That's the God who is. Who sees all of this. Who sees you. And loves you more and better than you love yourself. Which, of course, I need to clarify as soon as I say that. Because we live in a, in a culture that has some serious misunderstandings about what that sentence would mean. Because we, we very typically, people have always been like this probably, but we especially today, we, we hear love and we think, even in, human, in all relationships in fact, we, we think, if you love me, you would do X which is what I think would be love. If she loved me, if they loved me, they would be this way. They wouldn't ever do that. We, 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 we view love kind of backwards. We, we view like what, what we want and then determine that's what love would be. Any parent knows that doesn't work. Any parents heard a child say, if you love me, and you know, actually, because I love you, I'm not doing that. Any parent knows it doesn't work. But we think like that very often in human relationships, and we think like that definitely with God. If God loved me, he would do X for me. He would do Y, and he would never do Z. If God loved me, he would accept me as I am. He would accept me in any, in any way that I choose to approach him, in any way that I try to give him sincere worship, in whatever manner that shows up in my life. If he loved me, he would embrace me like I choose. And that's not true for God either. It's not, it's not true for parents and kids, and it's not true for us and God. The same Bible from which we learn that God loves us, the same paragraph, in fact, which the Bible tells us that God loves the world, the same Bible also tells us how God loves He defines that, not us. He tells us how he loves and what that love looks like and does and how, in addition to love, there are also other thoughts and other emotions and other things in play, not just an only love. So we've got to listen to God. As, as, as God explains, I am the God who loves the world he loves absolutely and indeed deeply and because God in wisdom and in perfect righteousness actually knows what's needed, he's loved in a particular way. He's loved by sending Christ. Verse 16, God so loved the world that he gave his only son. He loved and so he so loved the world that he gave his only son. Verse 17, he sent him. What a giving, what a, what a generous God that, that God would say, I love a world that is, that is resistant to me, that is in rebellion against me. Yes, and I'm going to send, I'm going to give this precious son of mine. This, this, is, this is starting to get towards the message here. This is what is, when we, when we grasp a hold of this, we, Consider this, this is what's going to call for rejoicing and, and celebrating. Why did he send him and how did he give him? He sent Christ as a light to illumine and then as a lamb to be slain. Given as a sinless sacrifice of atonement to provide life. He sent him as a light to illumine and then as a lamb to be slain. That's the death that gives us life. The Son, Jesus, John's Gospel explains, you're familiar with the very first verse of John, in the beginning was the Word, that's Jesus, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. With God, and the Word was God. 
We don't have three in one there yet. We have two in one. Distinction with God was God. Emphasized even in the grammar. We don't have Trinity yet, but we have two of the three. Later the Spirit will come along and say the same thing. We have a God who is three in one. Distinct and together. God the Father and God the Son and God the Spirit, God loves the world. And so God formed a plan and it was the Son's assigned duty to carry out this daunting task, which he willingly embraced, to come into the world, to take on flesh as an illumining light. You see this in Implied in 17 and beyond, we see the word light showing up there several times in this verse, a theme connected throughout John. He was born into the world. He became flesh and dwelt among us. And as Jesus lives and walks all around, all that he did and all that he was for all of his life, and especially for the last final, three final years of the ministry portion of his life, he was an illumining, revealing light in the darkness. God's perspective introduced into the world. So God's righteousness, what is right in God's eyes, displayed in word and in deed, shown wherever Jesus walks, whatever he, whenever he comments on something, it's like a light switch gets flipped on and and. Light illumines the room and says, this is what is and this is what should be. Look at Jesus. So you, you look at Jesus and you see, here's what perfect man, what God in flesh looks like. And then look at the room. This is what everything actually is. It shows the difference between the glory of God and the fallenness of the world. And it shows how far the world has fallen and how deeply the world is in need of a Savior. He's illumining light. Sent as a light. But if, if that was all that Jesus was about, that actually wouldn't help that much. That would not really be loving. It would be like taking us to water and then forbidding us from drinking. It's helpful, good to point out where the water is, and then when you block up the water... We die. Because we need more than just to know what we're supposed to be and to know what we aren't, what we are. It wouldn't, it wouldn't have been good news if God had said, look, I, I've written down in my word what my requirements are and now I've put it to you embodied in Jesus. If the next step had been what every other religion in the world does. And unfortunately, a lot of people think Christianity also does. This is the massive difference between you got Christianity, you got the Bible, and everything else. If the next step had been, here's what I require, look, embodied, now get busy being and doing that. And we'll judge you at the end for how you've been and done. If, if that was how it went, like every other religion does, we'd be doomed. The light would illumine and the light would destroy. Because we would be without excuse and we would find ourselves, I'm not that, I can't be that. And if, if I try to be that, do you, do you feel, have you felt in your life? Do you feel the crushing burden of here's the law of God. Get busy being and doing. And we'll see. We'll see. Maybe, maybe God will pick up the rest of the tab after you've done all you can do. But what's that? How, you could always do a little more, couldn't you? You could do a little more, couldn't you? You could do a little more, couldn't you? you could, the crushing burden of that. God did more. God did more. In Christ, he shines a light and shows here's what the standard is and here's where the world is, how far it has fallen. And then the word became flesh that he might become a lamb. 
to solve the problem. Given as a sacrifice, slain to take away the sin of people everywhere on the earth without distinction to your race or your gender, your height, your intelligence, your wealth, whatever. Without distinction for every tongue and tribe and nation. He did this, verse 16 tells us, because of his love for the world. He sent his son to be a light and to be a sacrifice because of his love. That's remarkable. Not because the world is so good and we're so worthy. It's remarkable because it isn't and we aren't. His love and his sacrifice is remarkable precisely because the world is bad. This is one who loves so greatly that he would send his precious son. And his precious son loves so deeply that he would willingly agree and embrace and take up this task of going not just into the fallen world to live amongst the, the fallenness here, but then to embrace the humiliation and the agony of the cross to redeem enemies. He loved us like this because this is what was necessary to give us life, to bring us back into the experience of what he always meant the creation to be, whole and right, full at peace, in union with each other and in union with him, abiding in love. That's what he meant for it to be, and this is the only way back, and so in love he sent his son to do two things. One, to pay the penalty that we've incurred upon ourselves for not being what we're supposed to be, and then to, to free us up and to give us this life so that we can be what we're supposed to be. He, he's done two things there. He's done the negative, paid the penalty, and done the positive to give life. This is a good God. To give us freedom from fear and to give us certainty of love and to give us communion with him. This is the blessed eternal life that is provided for us and the tense in the language here indicates you get it and it goes on. Wonderful. Verses 14 and 15. Christ crucified that those who believe may have eternal life. Verse 16. Christ given that those who believe may not perish but have eternal life. Same idea in verse 17. Son sent that the world might be saved through him. Verse 18, whoever believes is not condemned. In back to back to back to back verses, somehow or another the saving work of God in Christ is grabbed a hold of. God sent the Son to the earth so we wouldn't perish, but so we would live. Not just now, physically, but live spiritually, live alive in heart now and then on into eternity with him forever. The repetition makes the point clear. God has acted to save because of love. That's amazing. John 3.16 is so familiar to us. But when you stop and you think about what it says, that's amazing. What we needed and could never get. Shouldn't have had, really, shouldn't have had. God driven by love. And that's the only reason that this happens, that God driven by love would do that. This is the best news ever. And Christian, it is, it is worth our stopping to think about that this morning, to, to, to kind of recollect this is how God has been towards you and what he has done for you and how he has freed you, what he has freed you to experience. And this is the kind of God who reigns over you and who reigns over all of the world right now 
who so loved the world that he acted to save you out of the world and now doubling down on that loves you with a wide and long and high and deep love that's even more than that kind of a great love. You are an object of divine affection. And if you, if you stop and you think about I'm an object of divine affection. And then you put right next to that. And, and I know I'm, I'm a total screw-up. Yeah, okay. So is the world. And God so loved the world that he sent his son to save such ones. There's something posted above the urinal in the men's bathroom, which the women haven't seen. How many times does this make it into sermons? God saved you with his eyes wide open. That's the end of, this, of the quote. God saved you with his eyes wide open. And there's nothing you're going to do. I'm a, I'm, I'm a total screw-up. God's not going like, to discover that suddenly. Oh, whoa. Right? God so loved the world that he sent his son to save people who had nothing going for them. So the fact that you now find yourself, Christian, pulled out of the world, saved out of the world, and now showered with, with an even greater love, if it can be greater than that, which it is, it's great love showered on you, that now you stand as an object of divine affection, that ain't going away. Can't go away. Does that mean sin's irrelevant? No, of course not. It means in that context we can actually deal with sin. As a dearly, dearly loved one, we can deal with sin. Without any fear of being cast out, we can get actually serious about because I'm loved walking with him, not to walk with him so as to get loved. That is terrible. When we live life performing so as to be loved, that's terrible. And that is not how this works. Because you are an object of the divine affection, because you are an object of divine affection, we walk with him. We pursue him. This is who you are. This is what God has done for you. And that's life, and that's worth celebrating. That's good news. And, and if you're not a Christian this morning, I hope you see that and, and in some way feel like that would be good. It is good. So I invite you to respond to it then, to move towards the second point. The second observation gets at response. God's love in Christ creates a response. What's yours? God's love in Christ creates a response. What's yours? There is always some sort of response. Positive or negative? Negatively speaking, the sad but true verdict, you see this in verses 18 through 20, is that Christ came to save. That's the mission. There is a time coming when he will come to judge, and we need to be serious about that. We sang several songs this morning about being the king who reigns. And we need to be very clear to think, to think clearly and soberly, this is not a message that's, that's, that's a good idea amongst the options. This is the only way. The fact that Jesus came out of the grave alive says, I am the one that everyone has to deal with. No one else but me. And there's a day of reckoning coming, but 
gloriously, that's not now. What now is, is I'm the one with whom you have to deal, and I have come to provide a way for you to safely in love deal with me. And tragically, in, in a, a stroke of tragic, as Pastor Jed prayed earlier, insanity, in a, a stroke of tragic, insane truth, unfortunately, the common response from the world is, no. The light starts to shine, and very often, tragically, ironically, insanely, the world resents it. Light exposes, the light says to the world, to all of us here, it says how you live and who you are, how you are depending on how you live and who you are, to make you right before God. It's not acceptable to God, the judge. So the light says, here's the standard. Here's where the world is. And they don't meet. Now, again, this is every other religion, and many think Christianity is like this too. The standard written down, and we think, I'm, I'm going to try to like keep the standard. I, I read the Ten Commandments. I read God's word where he says, do this and that, and don't do this and that. And I'm going to try hard to do this and that. And I, I'm thinking, I'm hoping, how I am in relation to that law and how I do it attempting to follow that law, that God will at the end look and say, that's pretty good. Okay, I accept you. You're worthy of my entrance, of entering into my presence. Come. And the Bible says God's standard is pass, fail. A hundred is pass. Ninety-nine and below is fail. Perfection. Nobody meets it. When God says that, the world people don't like to hear it. And, and I just, I plead with you, I, I want very much, I'm, I'm trying very hard to not in any way with my tone or with my choice of vocabulary be unnecessarily offensive. So if I am, I'm sorry. I, I don't mean to be. But I want to ask you, as I say that right now, do you find in yourself something going, Arr. I don't know about that. What that is, is something in your heart hardening against that, resisting that. In the words of the passage, the light shines, and that's something in your heart drawing back towards the darkness, resisting, moving away from it. Not liking being told by God that you are a sinner. Now, in one sense, we, 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 can, we can throw around language and be, be comfortable. Yeah, I'm a sinner. We're all sinners. Uh, nobody's perfect. Yeah, but what I mean is that when God says, you, friend, you, you fall short of the glory of God. Your sin leads you to condemnation. One day. Don't like that. Again, I hope to not needlessly offend, but I need to point out verses 19 and 20 make clear that a person turns back and draws away from Christ's delight, not out of misunderstanding. Look at the verses. Not out of misunderstanding or lack of information, but for moral reasons. Because I love the darkness and resent the light. The text says, because your deeds are evil, and somewhere inside of us we know it, 
we sense this doesn't pass in the eyes of God, and I don't like that, and I draw away. Ever since the fall, we are incredibly uncomfortable standing buck naked in broad daylight in public. That's a physical reality mirroring a spiritual reality. If we lay all of our inner thoughts and all of the secrets of last night and the night before, lay it all out in public in front of us, we'd be ashamed. Let alone in front of the eyes of the Holy One. We sense there's something wrong inside of us. I'm, I'm off from God. And when the light starts to shine, we run for cover. Negatively speaking, that is one response that Ironically, tragically, God's love in sending Christ into the world, God's love, it so uh, tragically produces the fleeing from the love. Is that you? Has Christ held out his hand to you and said, here? And do you find yourself, even maybe even right now, saying, hmm, Oh, that you would embrace Christ in humble faith that, that says, yes, that's who I am. Here it is all open in front of you. You see it all anyway. You are all-knowing. You see it all. And I'm not going to run. I'm going to come to you. That's the second response. That's the one that John hopes to generate. That's the one that God, who moved John to write this, that God hopes to generate in people. If you have eyes to see it, do you, do you see the second option? Do you see Christ as hope. Again and again he repeats and, and ties together phrases of salvation with loving work. God's saving work is a work of love towards us that we can experience by genuine faith. It is possible for a person's reaction to the light to be different if God helps. But God's gracious help is he opening your eyes to see the amazing love of God in Jesus, undeserved and incomparable and so kind and exactly what we need. Maybe you see this for the first time. I know a lot of us have seen it before. But see it again. See it again. And respond by embracing Jesus, but by, by spiritually doing this, grabbing him and pulling him near, embracing him. Obviously, you can't do that physically. It's by surrendered, trusting faith. If you see this Jesus as this kind of an offered Savior, if you see him and you want him, you can have him. Theologically, all the ins and outs aren't traced out in this passage. That's fine. What we, what we are to do is clearly explained. Whoever believes has eternal life, verse 15. Whoever believes does not perish but has eternal life, verse 16 and 18. Whoever believes is not condemned. But then negatively, whoever does not believe is condemned already. Belief and life, again and again and again and again. Belief is critical. So what is it? Well, it's not just intellectual agreement. It, it's easy for us. A lot of folks say, do you believe Jesus is the Son of God? Sure, yeah, everybody believes that. If you ask Americans, you get like way high percentage of people who agree with that. It's kind of like saying, do you believe Abraham Lincoln was the 16th president of the United States? Yeah, I believe that. It's a fact I know and agree with. And, and belief in the Bible is not less than that. We have to know the facts, and we have to intellectually agree to them, but it's more than that, because nobody's trusting Abraham Lincoln for anything today. But trust is the issue. That's, that's the key issue in belief. It has to be about facts that you intellectually understand and agree with, and then belief in the Bible is about trust, about dependence. We all start out trusting in ourselves and our good efforts at being good people. 
And saving belief is about a switching, about a turning of our trust from ourself. A turning of our orientation that's self and self's agenda and self's honor. A turning of that orientating, orientating ourselves instead towards God and God's agenda and God's honor and trusting in God's way and God's provision. What Christ did on the cross, that alone makes me right. That kind of trust is what the Bible means by believe. And the grammar here in this passage makes very clear that it's not just a one and done thing. It's like a birth. Which is why Jesus was talking to Nicodemus about being born again. It's like a birth. Birth happens in a moment and has a biting effect. It goes on. Faith starts and it continues. Genuine faith leads to eternal life. So that's, that's the invitation that's, that's intended in this passage. Turn to Christ and trust him instead of yourself and your own efforts. You turn to Jesus and say, rather than running into the darkness, you come into the light and say, here's me, all that I am. Without any hope of making me right before you, I'm a sinner and I have need, and I believe that only your cross can pay the penalty that I owe, and only your life come to me can bring me the life that I was made for and that I long for and that you actually desire for your creatures, for me. I need you, Jesus. Turning to him is what obviously the scriptures intend and what, and what obviously is necessary to find eternal life. So you believe and you turn your trust completely onto Jesus and you surrender control to him and then you enter in this moment into eternal life. Fellowship with God right now. A release of condemnation, a release of fear, a release of the need to perform to be accepted. And a new power comes and resides in you such that you become different and you behave differently because of what's happened to you. New life, you live differently, you are different. That's a glorious thing, and it, and it kind of leads us to the end of the passage where those who do good works, come into the light to show, not look what I've done, but look what you've done in me. I could say a lot more about that. But the point is, this new life, it's new. It's different. Given by God. Here on Easter morning, what the resurrection says, what victory over death says, is that there has been a God-provided path out. A path out of perishing, a path out of death, and a path that leads into life. That's the message that invites every single person who hears it to take that path. And you take the path by faith. God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him, whoever trusts him, should not perish, but have eternal life. That has got to be the best news ever. Familiar? Maybe. The best news ever. The best offer ever. Don't flee from it. Don't put off considering it. Take it today and find life now. 
and realize that if this is already where you stand, yes, you have life. You can experience that refreshed, kind of by hitting like the refresh button, day by day by day as you embrace Jesus again, not, not to become saved, but to walk with him by faith today, to embrace him by faith today, will cause you to walk in, in refreshed life experiencing all that he means for you to be as an object of his affection. That's good news, too. Easter's about life, about what God in love did to provide it. By faith, embrace the love of God in Christ and find that life. Let me pray. Lord, I'm thankful for what you've done. What we could not do, you have done. You've given life. You've freed us from death. So we say thank you. As we now move to, to, to think about that further in song and to rejoice in it in song, would you stir our hearts and wherever we are, wherever each person is in this place, Will you move us towards life into a deeper, refreshed experience of it? Would you save and would you sanctify? Thank you that we can talk to you about that, that you are willing to do it. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.